Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Twice as hard for the same motherfucking title, but I realize that I probably won't be so lucky. Welcome. To high school hell. <laughs> I'm glad that you didn't start it with spooky season because we're not there yet. No, that's next month. Yeah, next month. It's like two days. <laughs> and it's fitting that we are doing Hocus Pocus at the end of September and not in spooky season because Disney also did not release Hocus Pocus during spooky season. No, it's this movie's release is bonkers and we'll get to that when we get the context. I... <laughs> I truly don't know what they were doing. I I don't know if they know what they're doing ever. But hi, friends. Hocus Pocus 2 is coming out soon, and y'all have been begging, pleading, writing notes and sending them via Carrier Pigeon for us to do Hocus Pocus. See, I thought you were about to set up like writing notes and passing them across class. And I was like, oh, and then it was like Carrier Pigeon. I'm like, okay, lost the school metaphor a little bit there. And it's fine. <laughs> everyone will live. I'm not as bold as Max Dennison to pass a note in class in front of everyone, including the teacher after I just got schooled in front of said class. Hey, it's a pretty slick move. It's bold. Like, it's a lot of confidence. Confidence of somebody who was born and raised in L.A. That We'll talk about that, too. <laughs> the confidence of being a teenage boy. <laughs> the world has not beaten you down and told you no yet. <laughs> <laughs> But yes, we are finally talking about Hocus Pocus, a movie that is kind of a coming-of-age film for girls, if we're going to count Danny and Thora Birch, but mostly a movie that teen girls loved. Uh, to be fair, Hocus Pocus is one of those like great equalizer movies where kind of everybody likes Hocus Pocus, regardless of age, gender, uh, but there are plenty of people who hate it. I'm sure they're, they do. Harmony, what is your introduction and history with Hocus Pocus. It, it was around. It was always around. Hocus Pocus feels omnipresent. And I didn't really think of this movie or I guess sort of continue to think of this movie as anything more than like festive potpourri, mm -hmm. like cinematic spooky potpourri. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't really realize until like my late 20s that like, oh, no, this is a big deal for a lot of people mm -hmm. where I was just like, oh, no, it's just one of those things that you watch maybe once a year. It's it's like a Christmas story, but not quite as overbearing because it's not on <laughs> for 24 hours, but it had a similar like recurring seasonal place. OK, so I don't know. that was my feelings on it. <laughs> and it's still kind of my feelings on it in a I'm sure surprise to everyone listening. I am a Hocus Pocus lifer. 
I rented it constantly as a kid. And whenever it would end up on like the Disney Channel or Fox Family turned ABC Family turned Freeform, Mm -hmm. I was insufferable. I had to sit down. We have to watch it. This is another one of those movies that we've described on the show before as living in my bones in the sense that I know not just the lines, but also the vocal inflections. I know the weird things to look for in the background during <laughs> the party scenes. Um, I watched this movie so much growing mm-hmm. up, and I, I have very fond feelings about it. And I am a hocus pocus centrist. <laughs> yes, you are a centrist at best, I would say. No, see, I I think I'm pretty squarely right in the middle. Okay. Like, perfectly right in the middle. Well, then I guess this is my challenge to bring you over to my side. I know I'm not going to get you all the way there, but maybe, just maybe, I can pull you a little closer. Okay, we'll see. <laughs> so before we dive in too deep... Here is the synopsis from our friend Dango. After dismissing a story that Allison tells as superstitious, Max accidentally frees a coven of evil witches who used to live in the house. Now, with the help of a magical cat, the kids must steal the witch's book of spells to stop them from becoming immortal. I mean, that's correct. I think it's more so to stop them from coming back from the dead. But like, and I guess I guess they're the lives back. out of all of the children in Salem before sunrise. Yeah, there's a little more to it than just being immortal. But like that, that's sufficient, I suppose. It's also completely ignoring the fact that Danny is here. Yeah, she just doesn't get to be a part of this, I guess, when she's a really major factor. No, she's like when your parents force you to take the younger sibling along, even though you don't want to. So then you just ignore them. <laughs> it's like that. That's what the synopsis is doing. This synopsis did not want to take Danny trick-or-treating. No. <laughs> <laughs> so before we really get into this witch's brew and figure out what the magical recipe is, it's time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Welcome to the morning announcements. As a reminder, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon.com backslash this ends at prom over at our patreon we offer things like our schedule ahead of time wonderful playlists curated by harmony our sadie hawkins dance episodes focusing on teen boy movies and we are currently going through our tv homecoming series through pen 15 we offer a free bonus episode every month for our subscribers at only one dollar if now is not the right time to support financially we totally understand All we ask is that if you love the show, you send us to a friend, you give us a five-star review wherever it is you get your podcasts, and you tag us on social media, hashtag thisendsatprom or at thisendsatprom. As we enter into spooky season, I know that you must be dying for more of Harmony and I to talk about all things horror. Well, you can do that. Get yourself a subscription to Shudder. It is like Netflix for horror movies, but so much better and way cheaper. It is the best time to get it, the reason for the season, especially because 
Harmony and I are both featured in Queer for Fear, The History of Queer Horror. It is a new docu-series from Brian Fuller of Hannibal fame, and it is all about the history of queer horror. Check us and so many brilliant, wonderful minds and some of your absolute favorites. You're all going to freak out and scream when you see some of the people in this doc, I swear. But it is released on Shudder every week. Give it a look. Alrighty, so in the intro, we talked about Disney having a really whack-ass release schedule for this movie. So Harmony, can you shed some light and give us a little bit of historical context for what was happening when Hocus Pocus came out? Well, first and foremost, Hocus Pocus was released in July. It is the dumbest decision. Yeah, and I I don't understand why. Like, I thought. I thought like, oh yeah, no, I, I could. You're, they're getting ahead of things. They're like getting ahead of the curb, so that way, like the VHS release can come around in Halloween season, and it'll really do well then. Except it didn't. It actually came out in like January of the next year. Yes. Yeah, so I looked into this because I had the same theory, and then I remembered. Oh wait, it was the '90s. We were not getting things from theater to VHS quite that quickly the in way that six we do months. now. Yeah, that's <laughs> not a thing. They released it in July because they were hoping that they could cash in on the fact that kids are not in school, which I kind of understand. But here's the thing with that. Kids can't drive themselves to the movie theaters. Their parents are still at work. <laughs> they, like, it, it's no different. They're still going to see the movies in the evenings when their parents take them. And they're likely not going to do it during a weeknight because mom and dad have to go to work in the morning. Yeah, and also, um, in terms of Disney's release schedule this year, they released Cool Runnings in October. Which makes even less sense because that is like a winter movie or a summer movie because you have two different seasons to choose from for that movie to fit thematically and autumn is not one of them. Yeah, like if anything, for most of its runtime, Cool Runnings is a summer movie. Yeah, why didn't they put that in July to have the January VHS release? That makes way more sense. Yeah, exactly. And by the way, Cool Runnings uh, made buco bucks. It made like $155 million. Hocus Pocus did not make that much. Um, it also cost more. So like the $40 million or so that it made initially at the box office is, is a little bit more poultry. Mm -hmm. So there's that. Um, one thing that I think is very interesting about looking at Disney's release schedule around this time is that we are firmly like in the Disney renaissance. Yeah, Little Mermaid has happened. Uh, we have had Beauty and the Beast. We've had Aladdin. We've had Aladdin. We've had, a, you know, big money earning animated films for Disney. Mm -hmm. And what's so weird is when you look at Disney's like back catalog, obviously the animated features are like what they're best known for. But Disney's throughout the 70s and 80s was pretty much kept like afloat throughout much of the 70s and 80s by its many, many live action releases. Oh, yeah, because the Black Cauldron like almost killed their animation department. Yeah. And like the 70s and 80s are just not like there, there's some OK stuff in there, but like there's not nearly as many classics. And before anyone says The Little Mermaid, The Little Mermaid was released in like late November of 89. Mm -hmm. That's like saying that The Simpsons are technically an 80s cartoon because they had a single episode. Right. So like, don't give me that. <laughs> but like, if you look at the live action releases, I know so many of them from this time and so few of them actually did well. Mm -hmm. And it's purely because of like, 
reruns on the Disney Channel, which was gaining a lot of momentum Mm -hmm. around this time because the Disney brand was at an all-time high. Mm -hmm. And VHS releases. Home video rentals completely changed the landscape of how a film could be successful. And I one, I don't think we have that conversation nearly enough, especially in our current like Marvel era where all they care about is how much money it makes at the box office mm-hmm. because it's a lot harder to track like digital and streaming and all of these numbers. But the home video market is why films like Hocus Pocus have the life that they do. Oh, yeah. Like, what is it? Would it be considered the secondary market for like videos and purchases mm-hmm, absolutely so that doesn't really exist for a lot of movies no because everything just goes to streaming especially with disney releases because it's just gonna end up on disney plus at some point right so so many of the releases i know were just because they were around like i've never seen the big green but god damn it if everyone's house that i went to didn't have the chubby kid from the sandlot getting hit in the balls with a soccer ball staring back at me every time i went over for a sleepover <laughs> like that was a thing and it's really fascinating to look at like the, the the some of the highs like cool runnings made a lot of money the mighty ducks one and two did very well for themselves the santa claus made a lot of money like they had higher profile live action successes mm-hmm. but there's so many that didn't and so many that they really wanted to be they they wanted the rocketeer to be big yes i they, love the rocketeer so they much. wanted newsies to be big i also love newsies they wanted two very very good muppet movies in a christmas carol and treasure island to be big mm-hmm. and just they all didn't and hocus pocus sort of falls into this category as well in the exact same way that something like heavyweights does where these are actually very very good films that hold up very well even with adult eyes that just didn't have an audience or didn't have marketing or didn't have anything behind them. I almost wonder if Disney just didn't know what they had on their hands for a number of releases at this time because they were so focused on their big earners. Well, and something that we talked about last week in our Sugar and Spice episode is the fact that people who were working in the animation department at the time Like, working on The Lion King was the consolation prize if you didn't get to work on Pocahontas. Mm -hmm. And obviously, time has proven that it's the opposite. It's the total inverse. And I think we see a lot of that with some of these live-action movies because they completely fumbled the bag on the release of Hocus Pocus. And something that we mentioned during our Heathers episode is how Heathers sort of feels like the last film that had, like, cult status that crossed over to, like, being viewed as a classic, Mm -hmm. I think it actually might be Hocus Pocus because it's hard to classify a Disney film as a cult film because they're the biggest corporation in the world. Uh But they didn't have that power in 1993. That that just, they weren't there yet. And this this movie movie more organically gained a following. It did. It organically gained a following. And now, you know, there's entire sections dedicated to it at Spirit Halloween's. They did the 25th anniversary celebration a few years ago and they flew in people who are like drag queens and in like impersonators of them from all across the country because it was huge and like you couldn't buy tickets to that it was sold out immediately i mean the whole reason that we're doing this episode and doing it when we're doing it is because they are making a sequel yes by the time that this goes live i think the sequel comes out the next day yes is how we timed it i believe that's how it is so uh, there's just a lot going on and 
I'd say that this might be the closest you could have to a Disney movie being a cult classic in the 90s. Like, you know, your Disney hipsters will say, well, a goofy movie, which is clearly like the best Disney movie ever made. Agreed. Or like, you know, Newsies <laughs> mm-hmm. or, you know, and any of these like deeper cut stuff that they don't have merch or for. Or things at the that Disney are on store. like Disney Channel original movies, obviously. Yes. Like that, those are like your hipster, like, <laughs> I knew Brie Larson from when she was in the movie where she's a race car driver. Yeah. So stuff like that. I think this is truly the large-scale cult classic mm-hmm. that Disney didn't necessarily want to be a cult classic, and that's what makes it a proper version of that. Yes. And it also is interesting when you think about the fact that, you know, Hocus Pocus and Newsies are both kind of like cult Disney hits, and they're both directed by Kenny Ortega. <laughs> Kenny Ortega knows how to make quality, and they don't know what to do with it. They him. don't know what to do with Kenny they Ortega. They figured it out with High School Musical, apparently. That's true. Yes, they got they they did figure it out with that, but they didn't know what to do with 90s Kenny Ortega, which is such a shame. because such a maverick. I think he's magnificent. <laughs> <laughs> he, he's another one that's like a sleeper for being kind of an all-timer on this show, because he pops up all the time either as a director or a choreographer, which I think is phenomenal. Mm-hmm. Think soothing thoughts. Rabbit bat, black death, <laughs> mummy scorpion pie, <gasps> father. Bubble, bubble, I'm in trouble. Tell me, friend, what is this contraction? I call it a bus. A bus. A what? <laughs> and its purpose? To convey gorgeous creatures such as yourselves to your most forbidden desires. <laughs> well, that's it. We desire children. <laughs> hey, that may take me a couple of tries, but I don't think that'd be a problem. I'm falling up. So oddly, this is another one of those movies that falls under the strange umbrella of being a movie that teen girls absolutely loved, but not really having a teen girl protagonist. Obviously, Vanessa Shaw as Allison is here. Baby Thora Birch is here as Danny. But this is ultimately a movie about a boy and not just any boy, a virgin boy. They say that with like virgin parentheses derogatory. <laughs> like it is, it's it's said like a slur. Virgin Specifically, is a slur in this movie. Yeah, like at the end when Thackeray Bings is like, I had to wait for a virgin. Talking to his like undead eight-year-old sister. Just like, like he had to this fucking guy. That. Yeah. Virgin. Yeah. And, and later on, I want to talk about how often they bring up virginal status in this movie. And I think it's very interesting to look at it with a, another much more successful Disney property doing similar things later down the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so, mm-hmm. yes. Put, so, put a pin in that. We'll pluck that back out so later. So, let's talk about Max Dennison, played by Omri Katz, who I love from Erie, Indiana. Um, he. I think was such a heartthrob for so many girls. I we're getting close to the season where people start thirsting after young Omri cats. But what do you feel about Max Dennison as a character? Well, I don't know a lot of people who thirst over him. They thirst over human binks. That's true. I think he's more, this is very much with like those two. It's the Casper situation. No, you're you're absolutely right. It is the Casper situation. And it is important to note that in terms of Thackeray Binks, um, human Thackeray Binks is Sean Murray. Uh, Sean Murray ended up being on NCIS for a very, very long time. Um, he's Timothy McGee on NCIS. So there's that fun fact for people who may not have 
made that connection until now. But Thackeray Binks is not voiced by <laughs> by him. Uh, Thackeray Binks is voiced by Jason Marsden, um, who most people know as Max Goof and like 10 million other cartoons. Yeah. Similar to Kenny Ortega, Disney did not know what to do with him in terms of his releases because they did not. also undermarketed a Goofy movie. Yes. They don't know what to do when you have Jason Marsden being awesome. Um, Jason Marsden ended up doing the voice dub because apparently as the story goes, the legend goes, um, after they had already cast Sean Murray, they had got him thinking like, oh, he'll be like a cool, like hunky California guy. And then someone went, that doesn't make sense. We're Mm -hmm. in Salem. And he couldn't do like kind of an old timey voice. And they were like, hey, man, are you cool if we dub you the entire movie? And he's like, yeah, I don't care. Yeah. So then they bring in James Marsden, who obviously is a very decorated voice actor, does a fantastic job. But yes, even live action, uh, <laughs> John Murray is, is not him. It's, it's Jason Marsden. Which like is, that is the difference between these toe-headed dream boys of the Casper situation and Hocus Pocus, mm-hmm. where these dead children. <laughs> these don't. dead ghostly blonde children with middle parts. Yes, Devin Sawa gets to voice himself in Casper at least, which would have been weird if it, that sweet little child voice of the ghost had came out of that boy's <laughs> mouth. In this one, I, I buy it. I do too. And like, if you're not paying attention to it, you can't tell that he's lip syncing or that he's been dubbed. But mm-hmm. if you pay attention to it, then it's painfully obvious. So, yeah. you know, don't, don't look at his mouth. It's but the voice itself does not bother me. No, not at all. And it's that just goes to the testament of Jason Marsden being one of the best voice actors that we've ever had. He's fantastic. Yes. So anyway, the second, possibly third most important dreamboat of this movie is Max. Mm-hmm. And okay, let's be honest here about Max. The movie starts with him being like this California transplant to Salem, Massachusetts. And he could not care less about witchcraft which is the most not Californian thing I can imagine. I don't know if like the woo-woo witches of Los Angeles were a thing in the 90s. I didn't live here then. I didn't do the culture, but you are correct. <laughs> yeah, like I don't know if like the popularization of like pet psychics had not taken <laughs> over the city to the capacity that it is now. Right. So he does he's he's not a fan of Halloween. He is the president of the No Fun Club immediately and I love his styling for his introduction because everyone in Salem is wearing these beautiful like autumn and jewel tones and everyone is wearing sweaters and they look nice. He's in like the most garish tie-dye shirt over a brown long sleeve shirt. Mm-hmm. Ew. Hey, he probably didn't have a lot of cold weather clothes. Okay, fair. So he's like, <laughs> I don't know, tie-dye cuz I want to make a statement, but also I'm cold. That's true. <laughs> and he's got the cross trainers. Don't yeah. forget the, the cross trainers. Yeah, which like he doesn't have those for most of the movie, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to say he's a, like he's an asshole. He's being a snotty teen boy. He doesn't care about his sister. He's being a butt. But also like I kind of agree with him uh, for parts of this movie <laughs> where like when they're at the Sanderson house and he's just like, I don't believe in any of this. I'll light the candle. Who gives a shit? I would have been that person. You absolutely, you're that person now. Yeah. We're just like, oh, don't, don't, don't tell me to do it. Oh, I'm gonna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I understand the appeal of Max and why so many people were absolutely thirsty over him. I do think that Omri Katz is an attractive boy he's, for sure. He's fine. Um, He's just such a wet noodle to me. Like it's Halloween. Have some fun. Relax. And he everything is so dramatic, but it's because, you know, he's he's a teen boy. So when it's like, what are you for Halloween? 
a rap singer. <laughs> Which, like, he... He does not look like a rap singer. He looks like a film director. Yeah, he looks like a film bro, for sure. Specifically with sunglasses on and everything, when he's got his hat and his jacket, it's like, oh, that guy's on set. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Or the fact that, like, you know, he gets humiliated when they're going trick-or-treating and then takes it on his little sister, and it's like, okay, he's going through it. He had to move from his whole family. For Danny, this is exciting. Like, obviously, it's hard when you move at any age, but she's really, really young. So, like, this is still really exciting. Obviously, she had friends back home, but now she's making new friends. Whereas when you are forced to move when you're a high schooler, when you have had kind of an entire life somewhere else, and then it's like, nope, we're uprooting you, and you have to completely start over fresh, even though you only have two more years left with these people, that's really hard. Mm -hmm. So I get it. I get why he's such a snot about everything. So I have a question for you. Max and Danny's parents, do they specify why they moved to Salem? I don't think so. What? I think it's just someone got a new job, I think, is we're just supposed to accept that. Is, is that it? I, I feel like... I think dad got a new job. Maybe. I feel like they're just like, man, Los Angeles is expensive. But like, look at this. It's exotic. Salem, there's history. Not like in L.A. (laughs) Even though you can watch the movie Something in the Dirt and learn a lot about Los Angeles history. Shout out to our friend Dave Lawson Jr. from our Don't Tell Mom the Babysitter's Dead episode. That's his new movie coming out. (laughs) There you go. Nice plug. Um, Well uh, done. (laughs) Thank you. It's a horror movie, too. You'll have a great time. But, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like just parent got a new job now we're moving and danny's you know pretty matter of fact about it she's like this is your home now and i get over it stop being a butt and i think that i think he needed to hear that from her sometimes you need the little sister i do want to talk about danny i love thora birch i think she's super fantastic she's uh, somebody who will absolutely come up on this show more often oh people keep asking us to do ghost world it'll happen i promise i promise but um I love Danny as like a little brat sister because I think she walks that line perfectly between being somebody that you feel an innate desire to protect, but at the same time, you also want to like bully the shit out of her because she's your little sister. Mm-hmm. And the fact that we are introduced to Danny with her having been hiding out in Max's closet specifically to mess with him. Oh, that scene. Okay, so <laughs> this movie is very sexy. At a lot of different points, but when he's like hugging and spooning this pillow going, oh, Allison, you're so soft. If she hadn't interrupted him, he was less than a minute away from just like. Oh, he was making a deposit in the bank. He was doing that five knuckle shuffle. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that is what that is what is in the next scene. If Thora Birch doesn't bust out of that closet and scare him Mm -hmm. like (laughs) and that's why when she's like, I scared you, I scared you. Ha 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 ha. And he looks horrified. I think he looks horrified because in his mind, he's like, I was about to put the hurt on this pillow. It's got like a 40% chub. (laughs) Like, because you're totally right. Again, Max is a virgin and, you know, virgin derogatory. But this movie is so sexual. (laughs) So, so sexual. Mm -hmm. And going off of like the adorable little sisterisms of Danny, when they, you know, run into Allison later at her house while they're trick-or-treating, she fully like makes a boob joke and is like, Max loves your yabos, which is one of my favorite ways to refer to boobs. But it's like, what the hell are you doing, kid? You're so funny. Also, I want to give you a noogie. (laughs) So, okay. 
It's one of the best moments of Danny because, again, she does walk this line between being infuriating, but also you like her. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important because... Totally, because that's little sister. It is little sisters, but also since the threat of the Sanderson sisters is towards her Mm because she is the child in this trio, in this trio... You kind of have to feel something in order to want to save her. Otherwise, it's like, no, she's annoying. They can take her. Right. It's like Labyrinth then. <laughs> right. Like, you need to have, like, incentive to actually give a shit about this child other than, I don't know, I guess I'm supposed to. <laughs> so, like, I think that that's really important. But also, do you think that there was a deleted scene where he says the word yabos or she makes up a, the word yabos because I've never heard it in any other context? Or if it's just something that we assume he talks about off screen more than once. My theory is that Danny is a chronic closet creeper and she hangs out in there all the time and overhears Max delivering soliloquies to his pillow. And I think she's overheard him say yabos before, which is gross and hilarious. I just yabos feels like the most. I've never had sex before way of coming up with slang for baps. This is Steve Carell and Fordial Virgin describing them as feeling like bags of sand. Uh-huh. Like, that's what Yabos is. Yeah, kind of. It's it's a choice. I, I think it's just like, I know what I'm talking about. Like, Yabos, you like that? Your you're Nunga Nungas? <laughs> I think what, on our Angus Thongs and Perfect Snog episode, we did have, like, the Nunga Nungas versus Yabos conversation. I'm glad we're coming f- full circle here. There are just some words that tweens and teens come up for like erogenous zones that are the dumbest things you've ever heard. Yes. But Yabos is so good. I do love Yabos. It's a, Yabos, Yabos is real dumb though. <laughs> Yabos sounds like a discounted candy that you would find in like an old timey candy shop that's like, aha, we have candy buttons from the 1940s. Would you like to try our Yabos? <laughs> Something you could buy at a good old Benjamin Franklin's? Yes, 100% that. Which is apparently where Allison's parents buy all of their candy because that giant candy bowl that they're looking in has 100 grand, which is good. But Raisinets and O. Henry, what are you, 60? Where are the Snickers? It is, um, I don't know if they have like a Walmart nearby to get like nice brand candy. I don't know what they're doing. I, I don't know how Salem in the 90s works and where you can go to get your big bags of like the four varieties, which usually you only like two. So you just deal with the other two. See, but like full bars or not, an O. Henry, I'm egging your house afterwards. What is how an O. Henry like? You? I've never had an O. Henry. So O. Henry bars have peanuts caramel and fudge and you would think that that sounds delightful right like all of that sounds good i like those things except the fudge has like the weirdest consistency you've ever had in your life the caramel is not as gooey as it should be it is like almost nougat but isn't nougat and then peanuts i mean peanuts are fine peanuts are great but like the peanuts are bad too for some (laughs) reason (laughs) just the consistency of the fudge and the caramel like it just doesn't line up right and it's just gross i don't know i i would eat this you probably would i would not next time like i'm i'm sure i can find it somewhere around here probably you know you know what maybe max enjoyed it so much because he'd never had an o henry so he was psyched to see that because he's just like candy's candy that's true we don't have that on the west coast (laughs) o henry bars what This is very, very true. Um, so, you know, these are our, our sibling duo. They have a lot of fun banter. They have a couple, like, really heartfelt moments. Mm-hmm. I genuinely really enjoy after they have their kind of blow up when they're trick-or-treating 
when they have a lovely brother-sister conversation um, around the little pumpkins. I think that's very sweet. Well, one, I'm sure you just like the set dressing. I love the set dressing. But also, like, that's the moment where Max actually has a significant character shift. Yes. And it's, it's necessary for It's him. very important to set up the desire to protect his sister for the yes. entire rest of the movie. Exactly. But they, they grab Allison from her house. They decide that they're going to go break into the Sanderson sisters' house and, you know, look around and do teenage hijinks. And I love that Allison is just so down. I think that Allison kind of gets off on knowing how much that Max likes her because he she humiliated him in front of the whole class and yet he still wanted to talk to her. And I think that that interests her. Um, but Allison is just kind of there this whole movie. I So one, I really love the slick move of like giving a piece of paper back early in the movie. And he's like, oh, she gave me her number. Ho, ho, ho. And it's just his number given back. Yeah, that's hilarious. So that's like, a great power move. It's a good move. Big fan. It, it's it's kind of like the 93 version of giving out a phone number to a dude. And it's one of those automated ones going like, hey, this is a fake phone number you were given there, buddy. Yeah, it's yeah. One, it's one of those. But um, I think Allison is just sort of there. Honestly, I think all three of our main heroes are a little bit just there. You're absolutely right. They're and all... I have no problems with it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a family film. They're all pretty one note. Um, I think the most interesting thing about Allison is that she has the face of a 32-year-old mother. Vanessa Shaw has mom face. Mm -hmm. uh, this is a, a similar condition to people like Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Hillary mm -hmm. Swank. This is not an insult no. by any stretch of the imagination. Like they just have this like very mature look to them, it, even though they're teenagers. It's like, is this a little bit of a licorice pizza situation? Oh no, you're actually the right age. Okay. Right. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So v Vanessa Shaw kind of has this like air to her where I think she, she, she's definitely the, the mature one of this group. But I love the idea that all three of them, despite having like, you know, pretty distinct personalities, I know who they all are. I can differentiate be them between each other and everyone else in the movie. But you need them to be the ones most grounded in reality because they are surrounded by cartoon characters this entire fucking movie. Oh, they are. And uh, the, the most I, I think that Allison's best trait is that she is very calm, that, that she is very collected. She's very in control. And it makes sense because like this is her turf. Yes. The other two don't understand this world, much less this world in magical turmoil. Right. So this this is not their neighborhood yet. <laughs> Correct. And I mean, from the beginning, we know that everybody in this movie is a cartoon. From the teacher who's telling big stories, like, you know, every person who directs community theater you've ever met. I love her. She's great. You've got, you know, Jay and Ernie, My Bad Ice. They're cartoon characters. I always want to call him Mr. Cool Ice. I know. I know you do. I'm a big fan of Mr. Cool Ice. <laughs> best full body tattoos you'll ever see. It's just ice, baby. <laughs> Fucking Mr. Cool Ice. <laughs> so you've got the two of them. Um, and then, of course, we've, we've got a talking cat. We've got a CGI talking cat. Not a very good CGI talking cat, but I mean, suspend your disbelief. All things considered, I think he holds up pretty okay. He's fine. He's ugly. I, he's, he's fine. He's very ugly. I would put him on the same level as, like, Salem from Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But, like, Salem is a very, very stationary puppet as opposed right. to this, which is a fully animated and mobile cat. Yes. But they're pretty shitty on the same level. Yeah, and I kind of There's love it. There's a charm it. to that. Yeah, there is some charm to it, especially when Binks gets to have these 
like visual elements that like real cats could not have. Like when his eyes get a little too big, uh, obviously his mouth moves as if he can talk. Uh, so his lips move in a way that cats don't really do, um, which I think is really clever. But then we, we've got our sisters. Uh, we've got, we've got the, the witches who know best. We have Kathy Najimy as Mary, Sarah Jessica Parker as Sarah, and the divine Miss M herself, Bette Midler, as Winifred Sanderson. Mm-hmm. Let's break them down. Let's start with Kathy Najimy because she never gets the love in this movie that she deserves. I think Kathy Najimy is a comedic genius. Agreed. I think she is so good and brings amazing performances to everything she's in, whether that be being consistently sort of right, but also unlikable as Peggy Hill for 11 seasons, mm-hmm. whether being one of my just personal favorite, like it, it just makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside in Rat Race with her and John Lovitz, and John Lovitz <laughs> driving Hitler's car, being a dysfunctional family, yet an, a, a favorite on-screen couple of mine, mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. fan, like she headbutts the shit out of him at one point. Yes, that's I, true. I love Kathy Najimy, and this script truly does not give her nearly enough to do, and it's probably because she really does not have a huge back catalog of roles at this point. She'd only really been on screen for like three, four years in smaller parts. I think Sister Act is probably her best-known role up to this point, but even then, she's outshone by plenty of other people in that movie. Yeah, Kathy Najimy at this point in her career was known very much as like in comedy circles and theater for sure. She has a great show called Period Play that, oh my God, is so funny. It's her and Mo Gaffney. Uh, Mo Gaffney is in uh, Dropped Gorgeous. She's one of the the Minnesota State pageant directors. So just fantastic. Great, great physical comedy and acting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is really nice to see her in this role because it did solidify her in this kind of iconic performance that I don't know if she ever would have otherwise gotten the opportunity to do so outside of probably like Peggy Hill. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that this role was originally offered to Rosie O'Donnell which I think at this point in her career, that's absolutely this is a this is Rosie. Um, uh-huh. She turned it down because she didn't want to be a witch, um, which I think is kind of funny. It probably has to do with how closely tied she was with like Nickelodeon too, mm-hmm. and probably. like not wanting to be a witch. But you know, none of these witches are all that scary. But I get it. No, I. I almost wonder if Rosie would have been the better choice. Not saying I want to replace Kathy Najimy. I want her to be casted literally everything. Yes. <laughs> but I think if like the star power of Rosie O'Donnell and like the extremely large personality of Rosie O'Donnell was in this movie, one, it'd be even more bombastic. Yes. But also I think this character wouldn't be sort of relegated to the background in the same way that she is with how it actually ended up turning out. Agreed. I think they I think they probably would have given her more to do because they knew that she was a guaranteed, like, people are going to be excited for the rosy lines, whereas at this point, Kathy Najimy, like, was not a household name yet, no. as she fucking should be. Mm-hmm. Um, so next up, we have Sarah Jessica Parker as Sarah. Sarah Jessica Parker, um, you know, this is pre-sex in the city. Uh, also, by a bit. Uh, yeah, by a bit. Also, like, a Broadway kid. Um, obviously, Sarah Jessica Parker was in things like Girls Just Want to Have Fun and Square Pegs. Like, she did have a career as a teenager and into her young adulthood. But this, I think, is a very good role for her and allows her to show off a lot of that theater talent that I think people have forgotten she has because of Sex in the City. Like, the amount of people that don't know that Sarah Jessica Parker can sing her face off is pretty shocking. I mean, the song that they give her in this movie is good, but it's not exactly a sing your face off kind no, of No, it's a lullaby, yeah. Exactly. 
Um, speaking of this movie being very sexual at a lot of different points, so much of it is with this character. Like when she's singing that song, her boobs are like all the way out. Sarah is so horny this entire mm-hmm. movie. Like we've got Mary who is sniffing around being the curly of these three stooges down to the barking, uh-huh. uh, trying to find kids. Winifred trying to get her book and also enact vengeance. And then you have Sarah who's like, ooh, boys, like the entire movie. She is so horny. And specifically like the inflection of her voice gets like menacing where she'd be like, I'll be oh, sweet, the ooh, boys. Like it <laughs> drops down and gets very like guttural and like it's almost like grunting. It's, it's feral. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the second she realizes that she's back in her body and is young again the first thing she Just says primal. is boys will love me like she's oh hi so, billy she's so prime when she says hi to billy it's more like hi billy like she's but like it drops at the end yeah all of her sentences trail off low when she gets like that which is like the opposite of how like a very bubbly very energetic female role like this tends yeah, to go a boy where crazy, it goes up a boy crazy role is like ooh boys she's a witch and she's gonna fuck you to death uh-huh. <laughs> so like that's a big difference um this is a so two things about this role as Sarah Jessica Parker. This is my favorite role of hers because mm-hmm. I think she is fantastic. She's so funny. And two, I think this is uh, the prettiest she is in her career. I think she's really beautiful in this. It's the dark lip. Like the dark lip really like lets her eyes pop. It's just, it's very she's good. She's like the, uh, like the boho goth types where it's like, I'm blonde, but I use really dark colors. Yeah. She looks fantastic in this. And she also gets to play a kind of like bimbo character in a way that I just love. And it's one that like, she gets to be silly. She gets Mm -hmm. to be goofy. Obviously it's filling kind of like the dumb blonde stereotype that we all know, but because she's so just excited to be there, Mm -hmm. it never, like it never feels like it's mocking her. Like she is, She's a part of it. She's a part of it, yeah. And I think that that's a really important distinction. Like it never feels mean-spirited. And the times that it does feel mean-spirited are because Winifred is intentionally being mean to her. Yeah. Sisters, behold! I am beautiful! Boys will love me! We're young! (laughs) Well, younger. But it's a star! shall be a sprig forever once I suck the life out of all the children in Salem. Let's brew another batch. You hag! There are not enough children in the world to make thee young and beautiful. Hag. Uh-oh. Sisters, did you hear what he called you? Yeah, and like, outside of your normal, like, ah, you, you goof, you mook kind of Three Stooges style things mm-hmm. that are going on, they're not really... Uh, a lot of like, hey, you're dumb jokes. It's more of like, I don't know how buses work because mm-hmm. I died 300 years ago. So like, there's not a lot of like dumb blonde jokes. That's just more of like the shorthand of it. If anything, the insults that they throw at the Sanderson sisters uh, quite unfairly is that they're ugly. And right. <laughs> realistically, that could maybe only apply to Winifred. <laughs> Yeah, that's very true. I think it it's, only it's gets Bette Midler's got goofy hair and goofy eyebrows and goofy teeth. And she's got she's got the 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 painted doll lips going on yes. and you know it's, it's not even ugly. It's bad styling choices. Yes, it's not <laughs> ugly at all. So 
Talking about Winifred, and more specifically, talking about Bette Midler has gotten a little bit complicated. Mm -hmm. And if you are a member of our Patreon, then you know that this month's newsletter subject was kind of about, like, what the hell do we do with Bette Midler? So I did want to at least dedicate a little time to this conversation. Um, obviously, I'm not going to go into as much detail as we did on the Patreon, but that's something that you can get for just $1, friends. Just $1. Um, but let's let's talk about the elephant in the room of Bette Midler just saying shit online that she shouldn't be saying. Yeah. So for anybody who doesn't know... Um, around the time that they announced the release date for Hocus Pocus 2, uh, Bette Midler was very riled up about Roe v. Wade being repealed. And so she was saying things like, oh, well, they're trying to take women's identity away from them. And it got into like really turfy rhetoric. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that I support her. I will say Bette Midler's very old and doesn't understand necessarily the context that some words are used in these days. Right. So why it gets complicated with somebody like Bette Midler, who obviously got her start performing in gay bathhouses, she has spent her entire career being an ally to the gay community, is that one, she's earned a lot of good faith with a lot of people. So there's some Particularly people- older. People. Yeah, so there's definitely going to be people who are going to side with her no matter what period. Mm -hmm. There's also an entire generation of people who don't know her work because she doesn't work as consistently anymore. So they only know her from her legacy projects like Hocus Pocus and then the stuff that she says on Twitter. So then what we're left with is two very polarizing views on who this woman is and what her intentions are and what she meant by her words and what her the impact of her words were. And the reality is that it is a complicated, messy, nuanced part in the middle. Like, that's where it is. From my perspective, I don't think that Bette Midler is a turf. I do not think that she saw that language of, like, birthing people, people who menstruate, people with vaginas, and thought, oh, the trans people, they're taking away womanhood. Boo, trans people. I do not think that's what she thought. I think she saw that, and she said... Don't you see what the right is doing? They're dehumanizing us because for many, many years, the big push with feminist rhetoric was to stop identifying people by their genitals. So now that we're bringing that back into a conversation, that's conflicting with a lot of this like second wave feminist ideals that she grew up with. Mm -hmm. So the problem, though, is that because she's also extremely wealthy, very rich and older, no one has ever sat Bette Midler down and been like, hey, language like this, these are turf dog whistles. Mm -hmm. That's what you're promoting here. I don't think she knew that. But then, of course, when you have no, nothing but people coming at her and being like, hey, you're transphobic. Hey, you're transphobic. Hey, you're transphobic. Her immediate response was to be defensive. And she's like, I can't be transphobic. I've been a gay icon my entire life. I've dedicated my entire life to gay people. What are you talking about? Like, there's a disconnect here because... The internet has made it so that there are so many people in different stages of like their social justice and their personal accountability journeys, and we're all interacting with each other and assuming that everybody has the same information. There is no way in hell Bette Midler knew that those words were turf dog whistles. She doesn't know that mm -hmm. fully. And that's, again, not to give her a pass. Uh, her apology could have been way more humble than it was. 
the humble. But she's also Bette fucking Midler. She's not going to be humble. And like, I'm not going to expect that from her. So again, like, I'm not giving her a pass. I'm not excusing the things that she said. It's just complicated. Mm -hmm. And we have to acknowledge that it's complicated. If some people are like, no, I'm done. I don't want to like deal with this. That is your right. Totally set your boundaries where you are. I just approach things from a more nuanced perspective. Like, that's just who I am as a person. I can't fight it. I can't change it. That's who I am. And I appreciate that about you. Well, thanks. For for me, I don't really have enough investment in Bette Midler to die on any particular hill with her. <laughs> um, she's she's not Richard O'Brien, so like... Right, that's another complicated one that I don't know if we'll even get to that on the show ever, but one complicated. Day, maybe, but like... <laughs> I'll I'll die on the hill of Richard O'Brien. I bet Midler, she's fine. She'll figure it I, out. I like what you did at a time, but you can support gay people and not support trans people, yeah. as we're seeing increasingly often these days. Yes, so. absolutely. I do think, though, I do think that Bette Midler uh, like, is an advocate for trans people. Because even in her response, she was like, no, all women, like all of them, including trans women, like that's who I'm fighting for here. And it's like, I know, but you don't understand the language, but I, I, understand, I understand why you don't understand the language. It's the mm-hmm. same reason why people who were like, oh, save the children. That sounds great. And then three weeks later, they're in QAnon. Like, I, 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 get, I get it. it. I, get, I it. get it. <laughs> it's just a mess, but I get it. Yes. So, I'm saying this is a, as a general thing. Yes. Yes. Understood. So with that out of the way, now we can actually talk about Winifred, a character that I think is Bette Midler at her absolute best. I would agree, because most Bette Midler movies I'm not too keen on. (laughs) (laughs) I love when Bette Midler gets to kind of just while out do bonker shit yeah that's, yeah, that's my that's favorite the best version. version of her yeah like even in something as ridiculous as the stepford wives remake which is not a very good movie she's hilarious in that movie Here, i thought fantastic. you were gonna say big business i love big business <laughs> that is on one of our very very early patreon uh things when we were doing commentary tracks we did them for big business with her and lily tomlin because she's mm-hmm. so goddamn funny in that movie yeah but so yeah I, this I is, like this it when Bette midler does bonkers things she's basically a cartoon um, she is really good encapsulation of how I feel about this movie in terms of its appeal, which is similar to like the first live action Adams Family movie, Ooh, which yeah. is that like the script to that. Not great. It's it's serviceable. Adams so, Family Values has a much better script. An unbelievable like the glow up between the first one and the <laughs> second one. It's unreal how good the second <laughs> script is. And the first script is kind of shit. Yes. <laughs> but. It's carried by a very, very good cast who are all having so much fun and are absolutely committed to this role and absolutely understand exactly what they're doing. Mm -hmm. That's this movie with these three villains Mm -hmm. because if they weren't as much fun or if they weren't these specific uh, characters or these specific actresses, I don't think this movie has a fraction of the appeal. Oh no, like this movie lives and dies by the three of them because they they control 90% of this movie. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're the most so entertaining part. Funny. By far. Oh my God, they're funny. The voice that Bette Midler has chosen, I love that this is the part of her contract. I don't know if this is still in her writer, but there was a period of time where Bette Midler would only be in a movie if she was allowed to sing a song. And mm-hmm. like, if there was no song for her, she wasn't doing it. That's why I Put a Spell on You is in Hocus Pocus. It is largely considered by a lot of people to be one of the best renditions. I disagree. Mm-hmm. But it is a good one. It's a good one. So so two things about that scene in particular. Oh, three things. 
Uh, it's one of my favorite things of a Halloween party or a costume party where I look in the background and see who everyone is dressed as. My favorite is Alligator Man. I Alligator love that Man. guy. There's He's like great. a weird white cat guy in the background <laughs> that just looks freaking wild. I, I love the super pissy Annie Oakley who's having the time of her life shooting fake guns. And the yeah. second Max is like, your children are in trouble. She's like, what do you mean? And like yeah. fully loses it. She's great. Love her. Um, so there's that. Two. Uh, you confessed something about the band leader in this scene to me, and I would love for you to share that with the internet. All right. So we talked earlier about how people thirsted over Omri Katz. I know people who've also thirsted over Billy Butcherson. We'll get to him, but, you know, that's a thing. When I was a wee lass, the camera shot specifically of when the skeleton lead singer of the club band looks down the camera because he's supposed to be looking at Winifred. That's the POV. But he looks down the camera. It did something to me as like a nine-year-old that it wasn't until much later in life that I could identify as, oh, that turned me on. Like Horny for the skeleton. I was horny for this skeleton man. And what's so funny about it is I've, I've seen what the, the band looks like without makeup. I prefer them as skeletons. <laughs> That's how I'm going to phrase that so I don't sound like an asshole. I prefer them as skeletons. But there was something about this being really spooky and therefore feeling kind of dangerous, but then like the direct eye contact and singing. And I think like that is when I fully understood like boy bands and like the power that they have over people. I mean, with his face paint, he's also got great bone structure. He's got great Not bone structure. Not even meant to be a pun. Also in a very weird way, because he's a skeleton, like even though he's clearly styled as like a guy, being a skeleton makes him like kind of genderless in a way that like yeah. was really appealing to I me. I mean, what's in his pants? I don't know. He's I don't know. He's bones. bones. He's yeah. just bones. I don't know what's there. So yeah, there you go. So yes, one of my like very earliest uh, moments of understanding like what being hot and bothered was is the skeleton lead singer from Hocus Pocus. <laughs> yes, which I think that that is delightful. It's really um, funny. <laughs> I I have talked to people though, and this is my third point for this scene that do say like this is the best version of this song. I think it's a very fun arrangement. Um, Robin Adele Anderson, who has done work with Postmodern Jukebox, recorded a version of it that I just think is nice. Mm -hmm. It goes really well on a Halloween playlist. But um, who's your favorite version of I Put a Spell on You? Screaming Jay Hawkins. I mean, it's really good. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a killer version. It's a killer version. It's yeah. so good. And it's it's visceral. And I like that. It's it's really uh, unleashed in the way that also like Little Richard was saying. Oh, Where yeah. he just screams so loud. It's like, you are destroying the... I don't know how you are not peaking the audio like mm -hmm. unbelievably, but like good for you. Um, Screaming Jay Hawkins, love his version. Um, I think Shane McGowan does a really great version that used to be a fundraiser. Um, <laughs> I think it's fun. It's, it's kind of one of those like, let's just put a bunch of people on a track and have them all sing as like... The Brits love to do with their charity singles. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's a solid version. I love CCR's version. CCR CCR's version is very light. CCR very nice. can do some fucking killer covers. Mm -hmm. uh, I think Nina Simone does a really wonderful Nina version. Nina Simone does do a really good version. That, that one's that one's it's a little more mm -hmm. it's more reserved. It's maybe menacing because it's pulled back. It's like it's like when you're mad at someone and you whisper. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's how that version feels. It's just a fucking good song. It's a really good song. It's a really good song where it's one of those songs where regardless of who's covering it, it's probably great. Yeah, unlike other great songs where it's like no one should cover this. Right. 
<laughs> it's like, oh, Bohemian Rhapsody is a great song. Don't cover it. No one Don't should ever cover, cover Bohemian Rhapsody. No. Every version that? sounds bad. Yes. But like, I put a spell on you. Like, I don't, there's not a lot of versions of it where I'm like, I don't like this. I'm like, no, I like what you're doing here. Unless you made some bad choices, you can't fuck this song up. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty great. Um, so, you know, we've got that, that song number, which is great. We have a nice little diversion at one point where they end up at Gary and Penny Marshall's house, which is really funny that they put siblings together to play a couple and Gary Marshall's just a devil in his boxers. Great. Good, good comedic energy from Gary Marshall as always. Uh huh. And good comedic energy from Penny Marshall being just fucking done as, as she is one to be (laughs) (laughs) rest, both of their souls. You're both great. (laughs) Some very fun side characters in this. God, they're so good. Yeah. There are so many good side characters in this. I mean, we talked about Jay and, and ice earlier, but we've got also got the bus driver who we were talking about how he's like the amalgamation of like Ed O'Neill and John Bernthal and like a bunch of other people. He's, this role could have gone to a lot of people. This could have been Neil Flynn and I wouldn't have batted an eyelash at it. <laughs> right. Just like this is just that kind of like brunette sort of middle aged man. Yeah. Who could blend in with any crowd. He's a hot dad. <laughs> like that's that's his life. He's I, he's I don't know guy. if I'd go so far to call him hot, but okay. <laughs> I'm saying it as an archetype. I don't think he's hot. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for clarifying. You're welcome. But he does have one of my favorite lines in the whole movie, which is bubble, bubble, I'm in trouble. Which <laughs> is so cheesy, but if I was dressed like a witch and someone said that, I'd be like, <laughs> All right. Should have done that shit last Halloween when you were a witch. Oh, man. Yeah, you fucked fucked up. up. God damn it. (laughs) Um, I will say that one of my favorite, like, exits, like, when I'm leaving a party, usually when drunk, um, or if I'm logging off of work and I have to say something, I do say farewell mortal busboy to people Mm -hmm. because... It's really funny to me. Yeah. I love that line. And I also love Sarah Jessica Parker's delivery. I think it's great. Um, But there is one more like main character that we haven't really talked about, which is Doug motherfucking Jones. Billy Butcherson. Doug Jones is amazing. And he he's one of the few like character actors. That's like a like a monster suit guy Mm -hmm. that people know because he's so goddamn good. Like. Doug Jones is to practical effects what like Andy Serkis is to CGI. For real though. Like so, yes, that's very he's, true. He's great. Um I love Doug Jones. I think he's fantastic in this. Um I think it's very interesting that you're like, "Oh yeah, a lot of girls like they had sexual awakenings to un- undead Billy Butcherson." Mm-hmm. And there's two things that I think can go into that. One, um this specific like styling has a has a very Johnny Depp energy around this time, like a yes. Edward Scissorhands. He kind of yes. walks around like a Captain Jack Sparrow because he's decaying, and Captain Jack was drunk. Mm-hmm. So, like, there, there's a little bit of an element of that going on. And during this time, he was quite the heartthrob. Right, of I course. Emphasize like, this time. Yeah, we're talking <laughs> about like the 1993 vacuum of Johnny Depp, not the fucking Darvo ass motherfucker of today. Yeah, like. Uh, you all know what's going on. It was unavoidable. You don't need our opinions on it. <laughs> right. <laughs> so there's that. Um, I also think that if you want to sort of trace that to later in Doug Jones's career with like The Shape of Water. When he got them cheeks. Uh, monster fucking. Yeah. Monster fucking's a big thing these days. Yeah. Monster fucking, for those that don't know what that is, uh, it's exactly what it sounds like. Tumblr. You can look that up. There's a whole, you'll find a lot of it. Monster fucking's never really not been a thing. Like all the way going back to the creature from the Black Lagoon Mm -hmm. to, you know, a lot of boys who had crushes on like 
their sister's Monster High dolls. Or King Kong, even. Yeah. Like, yeah, Monster Fucking has been it's, around forever. It's always kind of been there. It's just very popular right now in particular. I mean, yeah, there's entire, like, sex toy companies that specifically make, like, monster oh, dolls. Bad Dragon. Bad Dragon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, Doug Jones is kind of like the Casanova. He's he's the Don Juan of, of fuckable monsters. <laughs> I mean, because he's, he's got a nice swagger to it. He's dressed nicely. And even with, like, a sewn-up face and everything, like, well, Doug Jones is just a good-looking guy in general. He's good-looking in an odd way. Yes. And, you know, then he's also got, like, the big hair, too, that's, like, like you said, it's very Edward Scissorhands-y. Mm-hmm. Like, I totally understand the appeal. Like, not my thing, but I get why people were really into Billy Butcherson. Well, especially because, like, goth fashion wasn't as popularized in 1993 as it is now. So there is something almost exotic to him. It's also like, it, it's again, it's that danger thing where it's like, yeah. this is naughty and I'm not supposed to like this, but the fact that I like this is exciting. Yeah. And again, because th- this, this movie's horny. And like, we even find out that the reason Winifred killed him is because he was fucking Sarah. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. that's why he died. And who could blame him? I mean, <laughs> I'm sure they were a lovely couple at I, the time. I don't know about that. <laughs> You buck-toothed pop-rhyme firefly from hell! Ah! I've waited centuries to say that. I'll say what you want, just don't breathe on me. Billy! I killed you once, I shall kill you again, you maggoty mouthpieces! But yeah, like there's like just all these little innuendos that are thrown in around them, which I think is really funny. I also remember being a kid and when he yells at Winifred and tells her to go to hell, I remember being like, (gasps) and like it affected me in a way that like welcome to high school hell didn't. But him saying go to hell, I was like, you can't say that to her. And then of course, (laughs) he says hell a lot. And then of course, you know, (laughs) Winifred's like, oh, I've been there. It's really nice. And it's like, you're so good. You're mm-hmm. so talented. Some, some good zingers. This is a perfect role for her. Yes. So we talked about how horny this movie is. Can we talk about how it's so horny by being anti-horny? <laughs> Which is the Disney way, if nothing it, else. It really is. This... It, it's like uh, like Catholic guilt, but for the <laughs> mainstream. Well, we've talked about this before with like, you know, by giving the Jonas Brothers promise rings to prove that they weren't having sex, it then made everybody fixated on the idea of the Jonas Brothers having sex. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what this movie does because they talk about virginity nonstop. Mm-hmm. So then it weirdly puts all of these like, ooh, that's a horny thing. Like you catch all the horniness way more in this movie because you're thinking about virginity so often. Mm-hmm. It's so it's so interesting why they do that. And they because they talk about being a virgin like it's the worst possible thing. Even when they they fully believe they're talking to a cop. It's a guy in a Halloween costume, but the kids think that it's a cop. And the cop is like, "Are you a virgin?" He's like, "Yeah. Yeah, I am." <laughs> like yes. it's so serious. Speaking of hot people in this movie, the uh, lady who rides away with her fake cop boyfriend uh, also very hot. Yes, she is. That lady looks like she'll drink you under the table and I like to party with women like that. <laughs> It's one of the many little things. Mm-hmm. No, 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 totally. But yeah, no, this movie is, it's its weirdly horny and yet is demonizing virginity at every turn. And because of that, it puts this movie in this very weird place where like, I'm not 100% sure like who the target audience is for this because they're talking about how 
They put it in the summer because kids were out of school. And yet it opens with a hanging and we see their feet hanging. Mm -hmm. That is very graphic. Um, Like even most dramas don't do that anymore because it's wildly triggering. Um, So there's that. And then they're talking about virginity like it is the worst thing. Like, ugh, a virgin. The whole movie. And I'm like, what is going to happen if you're a small, small little bean and you don't know what a virgin is? See, looking at Disney, even in the 90s, though, it's very dark to see their feet dangling, but they would do shit like that. Where Hunchback, consistently very dark. Um, Tarzan, that one dude gets murdered so hard. And then, like, lightning strikes and you see his shadow and it is very morbid. Or, like... I don't know. I guess this isn't dark. It's just, it's in the broad daylight, but like Mufasa dying. But here's the thing. You're talking about animation in all three of those examples and animation, like, yes, it's still dark, but there's like a distancing to it. Like we are watching people. These are people hanging. Like that's, that's a very different visual. It's true. Especially for like a, what is supposed to be a kid's movie. (laughs) Yeah. But I guess if you want to relate this back to something we were talking about earlier, We, two years ago, had a very in-depth conversation about our own mortality talking about Casper. That's very true. So this is just bleak. (laughs) This was just a thing that was sort of around, like a Nightmare Before Christmas was around. Edward Scissorhands around. Like Tim Burton was catching fire. So that sort of dark imagery. Nightmare Before Christmas comes out the same year. Exactly. So that all sort of tracks for this time frame. That's very true. That's a good point. It's just like a very jarring visual with adult eyes where you're like, oh, oh I can't, they fucking hung them. Absolutely. <laughs> and then they burn them alive, all Return of the Living Dead style. And then they, you know, it doesn't work like Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. And then they explode them. Yeah. So they exploded. It exploded. So it's a... Uh, I think the darkness makes sense. Like, it's really jarring if you look at it as, like, a singular example of, like, oh, my God, it's a Disney movie. But then you kind of see everything that's surrounding it. It's like, that's true. No, it makes sense. Yeah, within context, it definitely does make sense. It is just, you're right. It is like a, they hung that person in a Disney movie. Like, the start of the movie. <laughs> and they also talk about a lot of, like, casual death just because they're witches. And that's how you get ingredients for your witch's brew. But even when they're talking about the black flame candle... It's made from the fat of a hangman, which in my brain, I was like, mm, I feel like that's somebody who was lynched and that has a lot of weird connotations. Um, so there's that. But, uh, it, it the, you know, they're constantly talking about like dead man's toes and they're going to get these dead man's chungs and whatever mm-hmm. that means. Um, and there, there's a lot of death, but then there's also like, we're going to suck the lives out of children. Like this, they kill Emily. She dies. Yeah. Emily is dead. They, <laughs> they murder run that over, girl. They run over a cat. Mm-hmm. Granted, the he cat reinflates. He inflates like a, like a balloon and it's really upsetting to look at. Uh-huh. Um, but they are more upsetting than his CG. <laughs> I mean, even, even something like Billy cutting open his own mouth threads, like that's Pretty intense to look at when you think about it in the context of a kid's movie. It's pretty intense when you realize Doug Jones had real moths in his mouth. That Yeah, it's gross. He really did, though. <laughs> <laughs> because he commits, damn it. He's a professional. Um, but yeah, there's like all these like really dark elements to this movie. And similarly to when we talked about Heathers and how like Heathers can kind of only exist in this time period, Hocus Pocus kind of can only exist in 1993. Like Disney has not fully become the machine that they are now where they where are too big to fail. They're too big to fail, but also like they're way con- more conscious of mm-hmm. like the stuff that they put in there. They're way more, uh, they're, they play it way more safe um, in, in later films. So this kind of only exists here. And that's why I'm really, I'm, I'm really curious. I'm optimistic, but I'm very curious 
how the Hocus Pocus sequel is going to turn out because it's not 1993 anymore. Like a lot of the stuff they could get away with then, they cannot get away with now. No. And, and I, we'll see. Yeah, I, I have thoughts. Um, I think about it as, as this is the early part of the 90s and Disney still was adventurous at this point. Mm-hmm. Like they were coming off of all the failures of the 80s, but they were experimenting with dark stuff in the 80s. Like the Black Cauldron's the easy example, obviously. Mm-hmm. So like they were they were trying to do things. They were trying to grow up. They would try to grow up again a little more towards the end of the decade when all the kids that grew up on Disney were getting a bit older. Mm-hmm. So they were they're always trying to be a little bit darker. Nowadays, you could argue that they're still kind of are, but like in an extremely like sanitized and focused grouped way of showing darkness yes. so as not to be too upsetting. Yeah. So I don't think that the sequel's going to be very good to this movie. It it looks it, it looks, looks cheap in a different way than this movie looks cheap. Like this movie had a solid budget. I think it was 20 million or something. Mm-hmm. And it looks like Halloween. It looks like a bunch of Halloween props. Like it's a real spooky graveyard that is not natural in any way. And there there's a charm to that. It's like mm-hmm. going for a haunted hayride. Right. Or like a like a spooky cemetery walk. Mm-hmm. So I like that. The new one looks cheap in that, hey, we're making something for streaming only, and half the movie looks like it's CG, and yes, Kathy Najimy is surfing on some Roombas, and oh, that looks awesome. Oh, that looks awesome. so hilarious. But that, that's a movie that, again, is going to live or die based on how good the material is for these three witches, um, and hopefully, having now had almost 30 years to prove why she's a goddamn genius... It will give Kathy Najimy a lot more to do this time around. I hope so too. But I am, uh, I'm, I'm not expecting a lot out of a sequel. I'm not either. And I mean, there are a lot of people that are in this that I'm excited to see, like Sam Richardson, who's been popping up. He's in, in everything. everything. He's great. I love that he is in like a million movies, and I never know it until he's there. Yeah. Like we just did Good Boys on the Patreon. It's like fuck, there he is. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I love Sam Richardson. I'm excited to see what he does with this because I loved him so much in Werewolves Within. If yes. y'all haven't seen that, not a teen girl movie, but uh, it's just fun. Wonderful horror comedy. Very it's, funny. It's He's a whodunit. So it's a fun whodunit. It's, 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 it's very cluish. Yeah, it's based on the game. So it's it's very, very fun. Um, so I think that Hocus Pocus hopefully will have a very similar energy to Werewolves Within. And then that leads into like a nice sweet spot for him. And, and looking at the legacy of Hocus Pocus, obviously this was a movie that gained a second life on on home video. It's definitely a sleepover movie, especially around spooky season, mm-hmm. for sure. But it's a movie that both young boys and young girls could enjoy together because of Max being the protagonist. And I think that we should have more movies like this where they are viewed as accessible for for all people to watch it. Mm-hmm. I think that that's great. It's also it's just so campy and it's fun. And camp and slapstick are very close to one another and that makes it an enjoyable watch. Um, but Hocus Pocus sort of laid the foundation for what we would see during the the peak of the Disney Channel original movie days, which is that Disney knows how to make kid-friendly horror movies. They're mm-hmm. really good at it. And it's an aspect of their filmography that I don't think people appreciate nearly enough. 
No, Be- don't look under the bed rules. Don't look under the bed is legitimately incredible and is like a beautiful story about your imagination and growing up. Um, under wraps is a good friendship movie. They I think is really fun. It too. They did remake it, which I think is really interesting. And I don't dislike the the remake. I think that it's interesting. It's a little dependent on CGI for my liking. Okay, because wow. it doesn't have the practical charm of the original. Of course. Um, but of course, like without Hocus Pocus, we wouldn't have the Halloween Town trilogy. Um, you know, films that we love. I mean, we talked about it last year as like it's baby's introduction to socialism. Mm-hmm. And I, I really, really enjoy that. I also am an apologist for Mom's Got a Date with a Vampire and Phantom of the Megaplex. Uh, two other movies that I think are really fun that they do. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. Like I think that Hocus Pocus is like such an important movie because I don't think we're ever going to get one quite like this again. Like... They're trying. The clo- <laughs> That's very true. Good point. But in terms of like the similar energy, the closest things that we get are movies like Paranorman, which I love, but they're animated or at least stop motion. We don't get a lot of live action, kid friendly horror movies anymore. Um, I like to call them transitionary movies, but like we don't get a lot of them anymore, which is why it's so exciting when we do, because people don't know how to find the balance they either want to have something that is firmly 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 for children mm-hmm. or firmly 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 for teens on date nights this sort of tween era gets get kind of gets the, sh- the the short end and mm-hmm. that's that's a bummer because some of the movies that a lot of us love the most and hold really dear are from that era and we just we just don't get them anymore or if we do they go direct to streaming with no bells or whistles because they don't see, you know, 12 to 14 year olds as a viable market. Mm-hmm. Um, and then nobody knows about them, which is a huge bummer. Yeah. And I, I'm curious to see how movies like that are going to sort of be reflected on in, say, 10 years. Because mm-hmm. um, obviously people aren't just sort of watching stuff casually on TV and just you're kind of going to watch what you're given. Like, oh, hey, that thing's on. Cool, I'll sit down and watch it even though I was going to do something, but I gotta. Mm -hmm. Um, Or that you are going to rent something and show it to a whole group of people because renting something was like an event. Yes. Now it's just like, ah, a thing. I watch it and then the person who I'm friends with watches it and then we talk about it and we sort of forget about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, a lot of these aren't going to get physical releases, so who knows what ether they might get lost in in Mm -hmm. the next 10 years. Um, I just think it's going to be really interesting to see how movies coming out now are going to be looked back on in regards to becoming cult classics. I think you're absolutely right. And I, especially with kids media, because so much of the kids media that we have, you know, they, they're treasured and they're, they're shared along like relics. And, you know, my mom would introduce me to movies that I watched when I was a kid and, you know, people do that generational sharing still, mm-hmm. but it's just going to look so completely different. And, like, I feel like the success of something like a Hocus Pocus, like, really can't happen again. Like, oh, no, it's you're never going to happen You aren't again. allowed to underperform anymore. So that's where I think that you will have, like, some things truly rise to, like, the cream of the crop. Maybe it'll spread, um, like, by word of mouth uh, in terms of quality, like a Jennifer's Body or something. Mm-hmm. And then you will have that. But I think we will have a... Smaller number of like mid success cult classics. Mm-hmm. Like, I think we'll have a few really, really popular ones that everyone kind of comes around on eventually, but there's going to be, it's going to be maybe a little bit of a wasteland below that. 
No, I agree completely because, you know, again, not only did the home video market really help this movie, but syndication helped a lot. Oh, that's probably where a lot of it came from. And a lot of that doesn't really exist anymore. Like people are, you know, cutting the cord. And when you have everything being kind of delivered to you on a silver platter through an algorithm, if they don't think that something like a hocus pocus is right up your alley, they're not going to give it to you. Mm -hmm. So how would you know that it exists unless you're actively seeking it out and looking for it? Um, so yeah, I, I'm very curious to see how the, the sequel goes. I I hope it's going to be good because I don't want it to fail. I don't want like this legacy sequel to tarnish, you know, the, the original, even though it can't like this movie will still exist. It's not going to ruin your childhood or anything like that. But I, you know, I don't want it to feel cheap, you know, like not cheap in quality, but cheap in, in, in its soul, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Because this movie, you don't want it to feel like a cash grab. Yeah. I don't want that because this movie feels so pure. Like everybody knows exactly what movie they're in. They know what they're making. They're having the time of their lives. Everyone in this movie looks like they're having fun. And I hope that that was the case for the second one too. I really genuinely do. Mm Mm-hmm. But Harmony, I think the time has come. Hocus Pocus is asking you to the prom. Is it a yes, a no, a maybe? Or are you buying them a ticket so they can go on their own? I still think Hocus Pocus is a very fun movie. I, I think it's it's good it's good ambiance mm-hmm. as a movie. Um, I, again, I don't love it. I don't hate it. I think it's very fun. But I'm, I'm going to send it on its own because it doesn't need me. It's got a million mm-hmm. other people. That's a very good point. And plus, they would just barge into the party themselves anyway. Oh, yeah. Then, then And then take over and You sing. don't need that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I had a feeling that's where you're going with this. I'm not disappointed, nor am I surprised in the slightest. But friends, I, uh, I think that takes us out on Hocus Pocus. Uh, we are now officially heading into spooky season we have a doozy to start off the month oh i'm so excited Alrighty, but uh you can follow the show on twitter and instagram at this ends at prom you can follow me on twitter instagram and tiktok at bj colangelo and you can follow me on twitter and instagram at velocitraptor veloza underscore trap underscore tour and thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song harmony what indie artist do you want people to check out this week inspired by Hocus Pocus? So the person I am shouting out this week uh, is inspired by po- Hocus Pocus twofold. Um, so their name is Amethyst Kia, and she is like a, a roots singer who does a phenomenal rendition of uh, Katy Perry's Chain to the Rhythm, which I think is a perfectly fine song. But I think that this rendition services it much more. And... Amethyst Kia basically combines uh, like country, blues, bluegrass, a lot of these um, uh, first half of the century roots of Mm -hmm. music with like modern alternative. And you get a lot of really exciting, cool stuff if you are into, you know, more rootsy music like I am. Um, She released an album called Pensive Pop a couple months ago, I think. That's a good title. Yeah. It's, I believe it's a reference to Purposeful Pop, which was Katy Perry's whole thing with Chain mm-hmm, to the Rhythm. So mm-hmm. I believe it's a reference to that. Um, there's a really another really amazing song on there called Hitchin' a Ride. Big fan of. And even last year, she released a full album called Wary and Strange. Um, highlights of that, like the whole thing's good, but the highlights to that for me are Black Myself and Tender Organs. So there's a, there's a few select cuts from 
a, a very productive last like year. Nice. Well, everyone definitely check that out. It'll be updated on our playlist, which you can find in our link tree um, on any of our social media platforms. Um, and on that note, we are out of here. And don't forget, save that last dance for us. Bye. Yabos. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.